Hey friend, thanks for listening to the Fixate Phoenix podcast. We are praying that you are blessed by this week's message. If you would like to partner with the future of Fixate, you can visit fixatephx.com slash give. like to to plant a church a lot of our focus um, is on spiritual formation so what that means is what is it what does it look like to have a practical lifestyle in which we walk with God where it's not just Sunday attendance it's not just kind of us going through the motions of what we think Western Christianity is but what does it look like to have the holistic practice of doing as Jesus did And so part of that is actually we have, uh, me and my wife do a reading plan here where four times a week we kind of read the Bible really structuredly and kind of rigidly um, as a lifestyle and routine and rhythm. You'll hear me say these things a lot, habits, rhythms, routines, patterns, really with the goal of how can we be formed into the image of God. It's about having the rhythms, routines, and habits of God. But a few months ago, I was actually going through and I kind of had a profound moment in 1 John. And the reason being is because 1 John, if you know anything about John, he's the disciple whom Jesus loved. The writer of John's, the Gospel of John, he's also the one who wrote First and Second and Third John. He wrote Revelation as he was exiled on Patmos. Like he's he's kind of a, a very important figure, not to be confused with John the Baptist. He's Jesus, widely kind of viewed as Jesus's cousin, and ultimately somebody who had such proximity to the ministry. But what was profound about First John is the history behind it. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk briefly about the history and then what we're going to do over the next few weeks is go chapter by chapter, verse by verse to understand why it was written and the context it was written in and also how practical it is to us today. But with that, I think that even the, a lot of this was it, when we research, and I'm, once again, I'm going to try to not get into it too much because I want to tell a story first, but... I think a lot of it was, um, a lot of this gospel is about people, the, the church that was being barely kind of held, held out of like destructive tendencies, disobedience and, and false teaching. There's, there's like kind of, they were like inches away from like utter implosion. It feels like kind of all throughout Acts, through Revelation. And I'm not going to lie, like how many of us feel a little bit of that tension sometimes? Right, we're like, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you feel inches away from destruction and implosion. However, I believe a lot of us in here are probably like, "Ah." and I think, isn't it funny, like in our humanity to act like, like, oh yeah, we got it all like together all the time. And then at the same time, be like, yeah, but in the back of our minds, be like, yeah, I'm a couple dumb choices away from being homeless. (laughs) But I was, uh, I, I'll never forget this. Me and my wife, we live off of Northern Avenue in the, and really the 17 and a couple minutes off of it. And I was driving home from here and I was going down Bethany home. And as I was going down the road, I'll never forget it because I was driving this way and, a, and I could look up ahead and there was a guy who had taken a left turn trying to kind of pull into a neighborhood. But the neighborhood had like, you know, the step up to a curb and then a little ramp up to it. And it looked like his car had died. He had pushed it. And if you know Bethany home, three lanes and it's whizzing. <laughs> Right? So he's, he had pulled up, and, and here's the deal. I'm about a half mile away, and I can see this guy trying to drive his car while pushing it, and he's stuck. 
And I, all of us who've had beater cars know this feeling. <laughs> or all of us who live in Arizona whose battery dies every two years. You're like, oh, worst time ever, man. But this guy, this guy is literally in no man's land, okay? What happened is, is he gotten enough speed to get up the ramp enough to be out of the road. But the problem is he was only one guy. So he's pushing his car up and he's, he's at a spot where, oh, he can't get it up. And it's starting to go backwards. So his foot is on the brake and he's just looking around. Because he doesn't have the strength to get it up all the way. And if his foot isn't on the brake and he's pushing, it'll go back into the road. So I remember I look and I can immediately like, guys, we all know how this feels sometimes, right? Where you're like, you know, you want to act like it's cool, but you're like terrified and looking around like, God, please send someone who won't make me feel like an idiot, but will help me, please. So what do I do? I pull over and I pull over onto Bethany home. Grace is with me and I'll never forget because I go up, I walk up and I can see him. He's literally sitting there and his car is like maybe this far from the road. And I, I look at him and I'm like, I'm like, hey man, you want me to push? And he's like, yeah. And I, I consider myself a decently strong guy. So I remember I get behind his car and my foot is like, okay, so this is the road, the edge of the step. My foot is like right here. I'm like, okay, I've got enough room to really kind of get behind it and get under it and kind of push. And I will never forget. He's like, are you ready? And I said, yeah. And he let go of the brake and that thing started coming back on me. And Bethany home is not a road where you just throw a leg in the streets. And, and it's like, it's coming back. And I'm like realizing, I'm like, oh, this might be life or death for me. Like I am literally risking my life for this random guy. And, and it's coming back. And finally, like, like the, 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 the mother strength of rip the car off the child. It's like, I'm going to die if I don't really dig deep here. And so I remember I get about this and cars are passing me at 60. Just not, they're just like, what are you even doing? You know, they're so used to it here, I guess. Obviously, I, I got the, the car up. That's why David does communion. That's why David does communion. But I say that story because I think for some of us, God is holding us barely out of the road of destruction as our rhythms and habits have broken down. Relying on the signs of Christian junkie syndrome of, okay, well, if I can just go to the next worship night, if I can get that next experience where I really feel God, if the next two-minute sound bite from a sermon reel really speaks to me, that's kind of enough to keep me out of the road of destruction rather than pursuing the light. See, that's the thing about 1 John that's interesting. The entire first chapter is written about light, essentially. And today what I want to talk about is this, is learning and living through the light. Because I believe for some of us, we don't want to admit, but our habits and our routines and our rhythms, we've maybe never really properly had as it pertained to following God. And so what's happening is we're out of the road and we're safe, but we're keenly aware of how close we can be to destruction. Not realizing that the habits, the routines, and the rhythms are the very things that not, not only keep us protected, but keep, a pro- keep us proximate to God. And I think that's the thing we all want. That's why we're in this room is how do we get proximity? Not how do we learn from Micah? Not how do we have a good church service? How do I get close enough to Jesus in which I'm keenly aware of who he is? 
and what he can do for my life. You know, one of the more fascinating passages and words that Jesus says is in Matthew 7, 21 through 23. It's one where I think all of us have read and checked ourselves and been like, God, is, I'm good, right? It says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on the day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, perform many miracles? And I will declare I never knew you. Leave me. Let that sink in. God, I produced for you, but you weren't proximate to knowing me. Isn't it interesting, right? In this day and age of looking like we're producing for God, it's not what you're producing for God. It's the proximity to God. You didn't know me. Even though you could do things for me, you didn't know me. See, that's those few inches of destruction and safety. How well do we know him rhythmically in our habits, in our patterns, in our person? So what I want to do today is talk about, right, how we learn and live through the light. Mainly because what we see is, and this is what I want you to understand, historical context of 1 John, is what you need to know is this, is that this letter and the, and the letters after are what many believe the last written uh, inclusionary uh, epistles in the Gospels, or in, that, in, that, in the New Testament, I should say. And the reason I'm bringing that up is because many of us don't know the history. See, the last of these letters were written around 85 to 95 AD. John is the only apostle around. Now, what's even more interesting, if you really want to be factual, is that this particular letter is written 30, 20 to 30 years after Paul has been martyred. So that's what we need to understand first. But the other thing is he's the only one who's physically walked with Jesus alive on the planet at that time. So when John is writing this, the authority that he has is unlike anything anybody else has. See, there's other people who have studied, there's other people who have had encounters, but John has literally been with Jesus, has bloodline connected to Jesus. John has seen it all when this was written. He's lived through the, the ministry, Jesus' literal ministry, the establishment of the church, the furthering of the gospel into world mission outside of Jerusalem, the persecution of the church in Nero and Rome in the AD 60s, and now what's happening is there is a rise in false doctrine. This letter is a realignment to Jesus' life and message to what he is seeing in the world in front of him. Many believe that the enemies of this time is a, is a doctrine of Gnosticism, meaning that you can become the ultimate version of yourself apart from God. That you can reach a level of enlightenment and a level of knowledge that ultimately you're devoid of reliance upon Jesus. Then it says this, the letter is a rebuke to the secularization of what was once sacred. 
As we start to go through it, what's going to happen is we realize as people are claiming a higher morality than biblical morality, weaponizing the spirit in ways that control others and pointing people back. And John is trying to point people back to Jesus, the author, the finisher and perfecter of all things. John's life perspective of faithfulness and suffering is unrivaled. You know what's hilarious today is when we Christians in America like to talk about persecution. If you know anything about John's story, Rome tried to boil him in a, in a pot of boiling oil. And then when that didn't work, they be, people believed that they sent people to try to poison him while he was exiled on the island of Patmos. You know what exiled on the island of Patmos is? As he was thrown in prison because they found out they couldn't kill him. Once again, when you're going to talk about Jesus from the lens of both walking with him, suffering for him, building alongside him, your words might have some authority. Because once again, persecution today, I don't hear anybody who's been boiled in oil, poisoned, exiled, and imprisoned, who has walked with him literally, physically, as well as built and established the church in all of the world. See, it's easy to find those who have walked with Jesus, but to find those who have been resiliently steadfast in the face of suffering and sacrifice. Those are the people who have earned the right to be listened to. That's why this gospel is so important. And by gospel, I keep saying that it's an epistle. That's why it's so important, resiliently steadfast in the face of persecution. In the face of suffering, in the face of uncertainty, in the face of exile. He couldn't be killed, so he remained. Let's read 1 John 1 through verse 10. What was from the beginning, what we have heard and what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our own hands concerning the word of life and the life was manifested I love this how we, like people use the term manifested like it's a new term and not in scripture dozens of times and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was the father and was manifested to us what we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the father and with his son Jesus Christ See that language a little bit in the beginning, you're like, wow, that's kind of a little jumbled. But to give you a little bit of perspective, John at that time is what many believe really is the first theologian as well as philosopher. He's somebody who, who has both the biblical and personal knowledge, but also the understanding of eternity and the weight of it to make statements and things where you're just exploring and trying to kind of understand what he's saying. You know what's even more interesting is how we know this is because John's proximity to Jesus really underlines the fact that he can make statements that nobody's ever made. In John 4, 8, John is the first one that called God and said, God is love. John is the first one who said, God is spirit. John is the first one that now is introducing God is light. John 4, 8, he says he's love. God is spirit, he says in John 4, 24. 
And he's going to get into this God is light because many of us know, you know, I'm the light of the world. We know these passages and these phrases, but John is like repositioning his people to understand that the entirety of the illumination of your existence is in Jesus. So let's read because this is where it starts to get into the brass tacks. Verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him. Now, when John says this, I would say that this has a little bit, like if I stood up here and said, hey, you know, I feel like God told me to say this, right? Some of you guys are like, okay, well, I might be a little skeptical on that, but it's fine. When John says it, you're like, okay, well, he probably heard it, probably heard it. It's like, who would look at it and be like, dude, I don't know if you heard it. It's like, thank you for the delayed laughs. This is the message we have heard from him. We announce it to you. God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. What you realize when you start to break down, you can actually read in 2nd and 3rd John, there's specifics written about false prophets and doctrines that are going on, is in this particular one, there's a belief that after you choose Jesus, you don't actually recognize that he was dead and buried. You recognize that he's now a part of you, but that license gives you a license to live whatever gratifies you because that's what God would want. Doesn't that sound like maybe a little bit of how our country is today? Like I can have God, but at the same time, it's not about what God can do to me, right? It's about me becoming a better version of myself, We don't believe, no offense, in in the self-help and self-improvement. We believe that we are now dead to sin and made alive in him. There is a death, a burial, and then a resurrection in your personhood when you choose Jesus. It's not, well, I chose him, and now I'm going to just try to be a little bit better every day. We're going to discuss this in a little bit because this is what Paul, this is what John is fighting against. People who think they can kind of have this shallow conversion and then ultimately cherry pick these different theologies that are going on by people around them and ultimately mash them all together and hope that they can get proximity to Jesus, not realizing that they're real close to that destruction and implosion. It gets good though. Because when you read verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. It gets a little pointed and some of us maybe are like, man, this seems a little heavy, but this is the promise. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and cleanse us from unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. We're going to talk more about kind of where he's coming from and what he's, what he's discussing in the weeks ahead. But I think what a lot of us need to understand is this, is this idea that we could live in light and darkness simultaneously did not exist. And it didn't exist to John, but for some reason it was starting to exist to people that we could live in light and we could live in darkness. We could have habits where we love Jesus and then habits that are contrary to the proximity and presence that we could live in by following him. 
And so what I wanted to do is I just wanted to break down this particular passage in a few ways for us to understand this morning. And I guess I'm kind of coining it four ways to live lightly. No pun intended. I liked that pun. Nobody liked it. It's fine. Thank you. I was going to say four ways to live lightly. Because in my opinion today, the, the question is, right, do we walk and use him as that illumination tool that he is for every area? Or is there just this one-time awareness? This one-time, okay, God, like I chose you and it was great and now everything's perfect and we don't really change. Use the light to direct our steps. Use the light to examine ourselves. Use the light to pull people towards him. See, this, this doctrine has, like I said, John is introducing of Jesus being the central figure of light in everything that we are is something that he's pointing to because of the importance of what light is to us today. So what I want to do, like I said, is I want to talk about four ways to live lightly. The first one, he must be your light rhythmically before you will ever be his light publicly. I think some of us were so busy producing light that sometimes we don't realize that the wattage might be low. Fruit that remains comes from a light that is never shut off. You know, I love that that passage, that's what it's about. It's like Jesus talks about, okay, I'm going to, you know, the parable of, 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 or not the parable, but I guess the imagery of the fruit that remains and pruning so that there can be pruning the fruit that remains. And it's just interesting because it's like, okay, well, what is the fruit that doesn't remain? And I don't really have any questions or, or I don't have any answers to that, but I do know that to be pruned and then produce fruit that remains is something that within our psyche should be a little bit like, okay, I've got to be cut down and winnowed to be able to produce something that lasts. That imagery should be something that really kind of forms this theology around light. What does it mean for us to be pruned to produce fruit that remains? You know, I want to say this today because what's sad is this, is that the enemy doesn't care if your light is alive for a season. The best tactic he has is to take those who were the light at one point, brightly, and bring them into darkness to discredit the purity going forward. See, a lot of us, what we think faith is, is a season or a journey or, oh, you know, we look and there's times where we were, we felt more the presence and power of God and others will be dry or desert or whatever it is. But what the enemy's end goal is, is great. If you want to shine as a light, I can let you do this. But even as it says, after he tempted Jesus in the wilderness, it says that he left to tempt him again at a more opportune time. And I believe many of us, The enemy will leave you alone while you're burning hot. But his goal is to get that light turned off at some point. Because if he can turn your light off and get people to look and say, wow, they used to be like this. Look at how they are now. And in all honesty, that's happening a lot in the church today, if you didn't realize. Not just in the congregation, but you better believe in the pulpits. The lights don't seem bright. The wattage sometimes seems low. And what's happening is I feel like God's saying return to the rhythmic practice, the patterns, the discipline, the lifestyle, 
the resiliency, the steadfastness. See, that's why First John is so important because you better believe John has lived this for decades. He's lived it when it's easy and he's lived it when it's hard. And I want to say this to you today, that for a lot of us, we want to have the light of God in us but we don't want to have any rhythms of practicing what getting that light inside of us looks like. And even I would say this is what's sad to me is that people are all about their gifts being used publicly, but not their gifts being developed internally. And it's so sad to see incredibly talented people who won't put roots deep, who won't submit to pruning, and who want to produce fruit but aren't producing the fruit that remains. The second thing is this. This one's going to be pointed, but I promise it'll be good. The world is looking for light more than it's looking for signs. You can go on TikTok and YouTube and see, type in miracles and see all types of crazy stuff. But when was the last time somebody got around somebody that you know or you and said, man, there's a light in you that I've never seen in anybody else? See, light is so attractive and so unique in a world that's so dark because so many people are talking about and producing what they think light is instead of being a light in a broken, hurting, and dark world. Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before men in such a way, listen to this, that works are a byproduct. That they may see your good works. Let your light shine. What comes first? Let men see your good works and then hopefully you're shining. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. If the world is dark, it doesn't matter what we can do in it. It's not able to fully comprehend goodness until there is light that is present. Only when light is present can we see signs in the way they are intended to be. What am I saying? I would say this. I actually, and I I don't know what my thoughts are, but I'm just going to present this thought to you. I was reading recently about how John the Baptist never did any miracles. And it's interesting because when you actually look at John the Baptist's life, Jesus says about John the Baptist, there was no greater man born of a woman than John the Baptist. His diet was weird. His clothing was weird. His appearance was weird. Everything about him was weird. He was a weird dude. Didn't cast out demons. Didn't raise people from the dead. Didn't heal the blind was in the wilderness for years preparing the way was in the wilderness for years just baptizing people baptizing them into repentance but at the same time saying hey I'm I'm baptizing you because the kingdom is coming you know you need to repent because it's coming and then Jesus is the kingdom is here but His story is interesting because if you want to assess him by his works, yeah, he baptized some people, but he didn't do exploits. He didn't do crazy stuff. And and once again, the argument might be, okay, well, he baptized Jesus and a dove came from heaven and settled on him. Yeah, that was pretty insane. But it's so interesting how attached we've got to this productive, I have to be producing instead of God. I have to be with you. God, I have to know you. 
God, I have to be in your word in such a way that it's changing who I am, how I interact, how I love, how I speak. God, I have to be in community because I want to build alongside brothers and sisters, but I need strength in numbers. See, what's interesting today and what's sad is this, is we're looking to produce light more than we're looking to be light. The third thing, this one's a little pointed too, but it's fine. The more intense the light, the more noticeable the blemishes. Don't ask for more if you're not wanting to deal with what might be revealed. You know, what's interesting is we owe all of creation, growth and beauty to the fact that we have light. Without light, we have no growth, we have no creation, we have no beauty. And I would even say this to you today is I think a lot of us, what we want is we want this, this powerful revelation of God. But light and darkness, we just read in First John, they're not made to be together. So when light is present, it's to illuminate what's dark in our lives so that it can be removed so more light can come in. You know what's interesting? I did a lot of math on this, and you can take it how you will, but I want you to understand something. The disciples spent conservatively, let's say 12 hours a day, with Jesus for three years. You know how much time that is? That's 13,140 hours. Let's divide that by today's church attendance and Christian involvement in which I would just say an hour and a half a week, a week, and even that's a stretch, we're in spiritual environments. You know what that would break down to to get the amount of time that the disciples got with Jesus in the Western lens of Christian attendance? It would take you 8,760 services to attend. And assuming you go to church weekly, that's a huge assumption, with no interruptions, 52 times a year, you know how many years that would take you to get the amount of time that the disciples had with Jesus? It would take you 168 years. You want to take it a step further? How many disciples were faithful to Jesus at the base of the cross? One. So Jesus spent that much time with men who absolutely abandoned him in his most trying time and only one stood there. What chance do we have to stand with him? If they didn't do it, how can we? And that math is interesting to me because I think for a lot of us, what we don't realize is that every time we just we have just a little bit of the light but we're not embracing God, would you illuminate every sinful Desire, every struggle, every situation, every circumstance, every pain and brokenness that I'm experiencing and, not, and bring it to the light for me to find healing, wholeness and restoration through your spirit and through your word. When we're delaying that, what we're really doing is the enemy's like, great, let me get you a couple inches closer to that destruction, a couple inches closer to that implosion, a couple inches closer to me being able to discredit the light. See, light doesn't have any association with darkness because from its inception, it was never supposed to even be a topic. 
that when you had light and you had the beauty and you had the growth and you had the flourishing, why would you ever want darkness? But in the commercialization, in the, in the need to please the mass, we've dumbed down the wattage of that light to where we all can kind of have it and kind of not. Kind of be a part of it, but at the same time compartmentalize it. And I want to say to you today, I believe that God wants an intensity of that light so that when you get around people, they look at you and they go, man, I've never been around somebody like that. They live it in a way that I've never seen. They talk it in a way I've never heard anybody talk it. That rhythmically, patterned, disciplined, habits, they live it. And their light is different than any light that I've seen. See, that's what producing in this world is. Is when your light is so bright that the darkness gets close and realizes, even though they maybe haven't chose your light, that it's still different. The last point I have for you today is this. It's a long one, so don't worry. Confession and self-awareness have been the accelerators of taking sinner to saint since the beginning. If you don't repent and you aren't aware of the sin in your life you struggle with and not actively trying to change it, don't get mad when life feels like fumbling in the darkness. 1 John 1, 8 and 9, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful. He is righteous to to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What's sad today is that the church, I would say, has never been more adverse to repentance and has never been more unself-aware. See, God wants more for us but we don't want more of him because we don't practice a lifestyle in which repentance and self-awareness are present. You know what repentance looks like? Is when we know we've made a mistake having the humility to say we have. You know what self-awareness looks like? Is studying scripture in such a way where it's when we get into it, it's God, I want to be in your image. So as I read and as I enter in, Would you change me and make me aware of things that need to be changed? See, I think a lot of us, we just don't want to be self-aware because what we've realized is it's just a lot of work to be self-aware. Repentance is a lot of work. But see, a lot of us, what we're focused on is the work and not the blessing and the outcome. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to to forgive and to cleanse. Doesn't that sound soothing? To forgive... And to cleanse. I pray today that you're somebody in here who says, God, would you give me an upgrade in repentance and self-awareness? Because no offense, all of us, if you're feeling anxious, something about forgiveness and cleansing speaks to that. If you're feeling in the pit, something about forgiveness and cleansing. Isn't it interesting, these terms, we focus on the work, we don't focus on the blessing. Or we focus on the blessing and forget about the work. I've struggled with anger 
and impatience my entire life. Bitterness and unforgiveness towards people who have wronged me, lied, or said false things about me that have turned me a little bit into a cynic. And you better believe the last year or so as that cynic has has rose because now I have a platform, you better believe that my self-awareness and repentance is regular. It's regular. Why? Because those things, if you don't want to repent and if you don't want to be self-aware, then what you're doing is you're floating in a boat while the enemy's poking holes in the bottom. And I pray today that we're not people who aren't aware of the things we need to confess and seek repentance of and not aware of the things we need to be self-aware of that will help keep us sustainable in him. See, this letter in 1 John is so practical because it's like God is light and everybody's looking around like nobody's really said that before, but that makes a lot of sense. It's so practical, but at the same time, it's so mysterious, right? Okay, but light and darkness, but darkness and light. And as we start to kind of go through these chapters, I just want to encourage you to be open-minded to a man who had experienced and seen more than anybody in the church. And not only that, I believe that 1 John, this letter was written specifically in the intent of saying, man, things have gotten a little wayward. It's time to bring things into alignment. And I would say that for our country and our church, that would be an important thing for us as well. Let's come into alignment. Let's stand to our feet. You know, I just felt like to do this today. Typically at the end, um, I have a scripted prayer with our sermon that I read over everybody. But today, something we've been doing that feels like it's almost refreshing. And I want to almost challenge you to take it as a practical tool to do a couple times a day is just recite the Lord's Prayer together. And there's something about this building that stood over a hundred years and the fact that you know that people have recited the Lord's Prayer in here year after year, decade after decade, denomination after denomination, president after president, economic downturn after economic uprise, whatever it is, for some reason, this building has stood. And that's why we love, and when we walked to this building, it was important for us to be here because there was something about the traditional and the modern that we felt like God was bringing kind of these two things together on. And so today, you don't, don't feel bad if you don't know the Lord's Prayer, but if you will, if you do, if you would recite it with me, as we go into worship one more time. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. 